guess we're going to start this. <laughs> we have a plug. We have a plug. Look, look, we have an alarm. Let's get it. Let's nice. go. Nice. I even have a cussing bleep. <gasps> you mother. Get my. You goddamn. See, you just, you just got to run with it, right? <laughs> hey, yo, this is your boy, Gelly. Yo, this is Common Conversations. And my hostess with the mostest, Missy, is sitting across from us. What's good? What's go? Let's get it. Yeah, hi, friends. She, I, you know, I love the high friends. I'm, I'm going to secretly tell you something later about the high friend thing. I love it when it comes from you. I hate it when it comes from other people because I'll be looking at people and be like, hi, friend. I'll be like, you are not my fucking friend. I'm just, I'm just saying it's not true. Like, don't high friend me. But I get it because we're in a world of pronouns. But friend is, is friend a pronoun? For me, I mean, everyone's my friend. Everyone's your friend. Yeah. We're going to have to define friend. So this whole show is about, this is Common Conversations. This is your boy, Gelly Gel. And this is, we talk about everything under the sun from politics to life to sex the first time you lost your virginity notice I said the first time you lost your virginity uh, the first time you smacked a cop I mean please don't do that you might go to jail so that might have been the first time you went to jail um, so we, we, we many talk stories about in one the conversations that are on your table on your couch on your chair this is what we do how we do it and why we get down and so Missy and I have joined together y'all should see it like we have like these cool new avatars um, and, oh, and we're Jedis or I think we're Sith I'm not yes you are no. see I'm gonna bend it for her she's gonna be a Sith she just doesn't know did no. you not look at the paper I did, I did, but by by well, when this comes out, that that avatar they've already seen it. I know, and you can tell me, friends, I am a Jedi, a Jedi. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> we we are who we want to be. That is right. the benefits of being in this world and existence, right? And you said you had no imagination. I mean, I have lots. I just in different ways. So I'm a nerd, but I'm so you're more nerd than geek. I'm I'm a nerd. I'm a geek, but I yeah, I'm playing imaginary friends was never my thing. Okay, okay, got it. That's just weirdo. <laughs> that's that's my department, everybody. You know, playing with imaginary friends is, is the weirdo part. My daughter calls me a weirdo, so it, it works for me. I looked it up once, the definition. If you don't know what it is, look it up, because I'm not going to tell you. Again, I don't do your research. I just tell you stuff, and it's up to you to fact find it. <laughs> there you go. So you like being a weirdo, though. Oh, true story. Yes. It is It is. It is so great being the strangest person in the room sometimes. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. I've walked in some rooms, and I was like, yo, what the fuck? <laughs> beep. What is that? Oh, yeah, beep. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> For the judges that are listening, it's not the first time you heard this language. I've been behind the court. I've heard you say worse. Um, for the police that are listening, well, you know, you say that all the time. And for our friends that Hi, are friends. listening, you know me. <laughs> it is what it is. But I did promise for this series, because this is being sponsored, hosted, and provided by a whole bunch of people I've never met, that we would be somewhat PG-13 mm-hmm. um, and whatever that means, because my ratings aren't your ratings. <laughs> but I'll do better. So, all right, look, we we have a great guest in here. And, yeah. and she's looking at me like, yo, if y'all get to the point and quit goofing off on this, I'm going to have issues because I'm not a part of the conversation. You can chime in even though we have not introduced Yes. I'm not going to say your name. I'm going to leave it up to you. No, I'm just playing. We are going to introduce you. Um, we have a, we have a great guest. So this, but we, but we, what is this show about? This show is about telling the truth. The and truth. And the t- truth about Southern Indiana and the people and the communities within Southern Indiana. We know that we are closely connected with other communities around us, but Southern Indiana itself doesn't really have a voice. It doesn't have coalitions. It doesn't have the, the infrastructure to start having these conversations where we can really tell the truth. So this is the beginning of that journey. This is the beginning of telling the truth about the people who live around us. And it, it is the this journey is about what stories do we tell ourselves so we can feel good and so we can sleep at night. But what's the real truth behind that? And then knowing that truth, what do we do next? And that's why we have Iris here with us. Iris and I have known each other for over 10 years, which still blows my mind mm-hmm. uh, once we realize that. And Iris... We met because she worked for me. I did. Um, so let's talk about that. Introduce yourself. Okay. And let's talk about your journey in Southern Indiana and what, what brought you to what you do now. Okay. Uh, my name is Iris Rubidoux, and I currently am the program coordinator for the Clark County Family Recovery Court. I'm also a Clark County probation officer, and I've been doing that for nearly 10 years. In February, it'll be 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I worked for you Yay! at New Hope Services in the Healthy Families Department. Mm-hmm. And then prior to that, I worked at Hazelwood Middle School, running their after-school programming for Family and Children's Place. Yes, shout out to all of our friends at Hazelwood. Hazelwood. Crazy <laughs> question. Where yes. does your last name come from? Uh, it's actually French. Okay. It, it used to be, so it's spelled with a D 
D-U-E at the end. It was D-E-A-U-X at one point. Really? Yes. What made them, what made, did, like, was that like a conscious family change? I, it wasn't me. I think it was, you know, ancestors <laughs> to my ancestors probably. Okay. Um, but when it came over here from France, it became D-U-E. Cool. I don't, I don't really know. It doesn't make it easier for people to pronounce, so I'm not really sure why in the world they did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's an Americanized name now at that point, right? Correct. So I yeah. love it. Thank so you. So what do people... How do people say it if they don't say it the way it's actually? It so just, it looks like what it is. A lot of people say Rubidoux. Like, so it's spelled R U B. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you spell the word rub? Is yeah, R U B? Right. 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 Yeah. So they make the U long, right? Um. So that's a lot of people say Rubidoux. <laughs> so Rubidoux or oh, Rubidoux or all kinds of sorts of. Your things. whole last name is a T-shirt. It's just something else. <laughs> it's like Lul, right? Yeah, you got a hundred like, different yeah, ways to say it. So many different ways. So Iris Rubidoux. <laughs> yeah, yes, no, yes, yes. So Iris, tell us now. You work. We, I mean, we lovingly call it drug court. Yeah. Um. That's so. Tell us what that is. What do you do for family recovery court? Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like? What is that? So even in what you just said, so drug court, that connotation is negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within the last several years at, you know, our national conferences and things like that, we've talked about the transition in the names. And so Family Recovery Court is um, a program that is offered through Clark County Circuit Court Number 4. <clears throat> and we have sort of partnered with the Department of Child Services in that respect, right? So what we do is we accept folks into our program who are struggling with the disease of addiction and who have or are in danger of losing their kiddos to the state um, due to that, due to that mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it's a voluntary program. We currently serve 42 people in the program. So we, you know, we also have a, a specific unit of Department of Child Services case managers who work with us. And the program is designed to be sort of non-adversarial. So in that respect, when you think of going to court, right? You think of an adversarial um, approach mm-hmm. because you're going in front of a judge. There's attorneys. There's people asking you questions. You're in a courtroom. You're in a courthouse. You go through security to get through the door, you know, even down to that respect. And so the point of the family recovery court and problem solving courts as a whole is for people to be able to walk in and know that they have a voice in that respect. They can go in and talk about their struggles. They can go in and talk about where they need extra support. And they can do that in front of a judge who hears them and listens to them and it becomes like a family basically. So to be in your program, mm-hmm. so you're saying it's voluntary. So right. that's really interesting. You have to be someone who deals with the disease of addiction and has a child and that child is somehow affected um, and has come to the attention of DCS. Correct. And for those for those who don't know what that stands for, it's Department of Child Services, also uh, colloquially known as CPS or mm-hmm. and everyone calls it something different, but we call it DCS in our world. So I... I I want to speak to how unique it is for Clark County to have that um, because this has only existed for the last— Well, our program was created in 2011. Mm -hmm. So roughly just over 10 years. And not every community has a family recovery court. Is that correct? That's correct. Do you know communities around us? Do any other counties have that? So I do know that Floyd County, where I'm sitting right now, um, actually created, uh, and they call it Hope Court, and it is the same sort of um, same sort of idea. It's 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 a family recovery court as well. So that's the closest one that I know of. I know that Columbus, um, so Bartholomew County has one. There's several in the state of Indiana. I don't know how many exactly, um, and they are slowly but surely becoming. And when I say they, I say family recovery courts are are known as problem solving courts. Mm-hmm. That's what they are. And so there are other problem-solving courts. There are adult addiction courts. There are juvenile addiction courts. There are mental health courts. There's DUI courts. There's all sorts of problem-solving courts. And they're becoming much more prevalent um, in, throughout the United States as a whole because they've been proven to work. Right. They're effective. They're effective. I, I totally have a question, right? Yes. So Bring it. We're calling court problem-solving. Mm-hmm. So typically when you go to court, it's because you're going to jail or you just got out of jail or you're avoiding jail. So we're calling, is that is that the element of problem solving? So no, my well, not specifically for my population, right? So they're not 
typically they are not in jail when I get to them. Um, but for some cases, yes. However, that's not the, the problem. Jail is not really the problem at that point. The problem is the DUIs or the addiction or the homelessness or the mental health issues that they have going on. Those are the problems that we're looking to solve Okay. at that point. And so how does court, like, I mean, just in my world, again, mm-hmm. you know, most people want to avoid being a part of the system, being in the system. Going to court means that you're, you're on a journey to being a slave in the United States, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Just by amendment, right? And so when I hear, I'm just because you're you're throwing it out here, and it's like uh, problem solving. Like I'm like, has a court ever solved my problems? It's created my problems. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I got a DUI or or I was out selling drugs. Not I specifically. We're talking about the proverbial I, right? Or proverbial you. Um, yeah. So how does it actually solve a problem? So we have, um, specifically for my court on Wednesdays is when our is our court day, right? And so Wednesday morning we have a staffing. And that staffing meeting includes treatment providers, as in therapists, um, home-based caseworkers, visitation supervisors, the Department of Child Services, public defenders from the county that represent our folks, um, DCS attorneys, or one DCS attorney currently, and then myself, our our two other case managers with Family Recovery Court, and our judge. And we sit in in that room on Wednesday mornings, and we talk about every single person who is participating in our program. We talk about where they're at with housing, where they're at with their therapy, where they're at with visitations. How's that going? Do we need more work on parenting? We talk about all sorts of things, what they're doing well in, where they where they might need some extra support in. And then starting, you know, later in the morning, we start having court and we have court at 1045 and then we have court at 145. We have two different sessions. And yes, I think it's quite terrifying for folks at first when they come in and they see like the judge in her robe up on the bench, you know, because that in and of itself is terrifying. But they also, whenever they're are called up to to sort of give their weekly update to the judge, their whole entire team stands around them. So those therapists, those home-based caseworkers, those people who are literally out here on the ground, on the front lines, working with these folks, they're with them in court. And they come up and they stand behind them as the judge is asking him or her, how's your week been? What's been going on? And he or she can update and say, you know, I'm going to fail this screen. Or I, I had one young lady who kept track of all of her negative drug screens. And so she would come in and say, judge, 167th negative drug screen this week or whatever, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so then judge can then follow up with well, here's what we're going to do. Or we talked about in staffing and this is, this is what we're looking at. And yeah, people think punitive, people think sanctions, people think negative. We don't, that's not our, that's not our goal. Our goal is to support while holding accountable. So what I'm hearing is in a vacuum of case management. These are things like wraparound services, another way to look at this. Mm -hmm. And as the system doesn't have the infrastructure set up for wraparound services for these families to voluntarily just walk in and say, hey, I need help and I need someone to put all these pieces together. Because ultimately, that would be ideal if one of the families that we work with, because we do work with very similar populations, sometimes completely the same, Mm -hmm. if one of my moms were to walk in and say, I need help and have all of these therapists and case managers come around them without being part of the system, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. But this is only available once they become identified by the system, which means for for those listening, it would be lovely if this could be a voluntary thing that you walked into a, a, a mental health provider or a a recovery, you know, building and say, hey, I need this. And then you would have access to all of that, especially for people who don't have resources. So if their insurance doesn't cover certain things, that they don't have the money to pay for this. But this is just something that the system would do for them. But the only way that they can get this support is becoming um, identified by the criminal justice system. It's interesting that you say that because the same young lady who I was just talking about, who was keeping track of her negative drug screens, she graduated our program. And when you graduate my program, your or our program, it's not just mine. I have a wonderful group of people that work with me. (laughs) When you graduate our program, your, your Department of Child Services cases on that day are closed. So judge goes ahead, signs the dismissal, you're given your diploma, your gift from us, and then your case closure notes, right? Or your case closure. So a little while after she graduated, I got a phone call from her that said, I've had a lapse. What do I do? DCS was not involved. The courts were not involved. The intervention of the courts at all. She had no legal obligation to report this, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. she did at a huge risk to her and her girls calling and saying, I've had a lapse. What do I do? You know? And so then we went from there. But like, it just, 
it works, you know, like it, that was harm reduction for her. Mm-hmm. That was a situation where she was like, I had a lapse. I'm scared. You're the only resource I know. Can you help? Right. She and, didn't lose her girls that time. Well, and imagine because she, you gained that trust with her, that rapport, because she learned to trust you that she knows when I reach out to Iris, I'm reaching out to Iris and Iris knows the system. Iris knows the next right step for me. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, she had to learn that through becoming identified in intervention with the criminal justice system. But you, because of who you are and because they hired amazing, amazingly well when they hired you and, Thank took, you. You and took you from me, <laughs> but um, you know how to see the person mm-hmm. and not the label of criminal. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about in earlier episodes, if, you, if you've if you listened to our discussion with Dan Cannon, the idea of the criminal class and the set apart, if you are a special person like Iris <clears throat> who can build that rapport and see the person and not the charge, that is ideal. So Iris, because you work with families who are suffering from the disease of addiction, mm-hmm. you have an a unique perspective that I think that our listeners really need to hear. So tell us, as you understand it, what is the story that like just regular people on the street who maybe don't know someone or don't realize that they know someone who suffers from the disease of addiction? What story do we tell about those people? So I don't know that we tell a story. I, mm, that's part of the problem, I mm-hmm. feel like. So our community does a great job at educating during recovery month and around overdose awareness and things like that when it's that specific month. This is a year-round, every second of every day problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we educate as often or as much as we can. And when I say that, everyone has been touched or knows somebody who has been touched by the disease. I think we need to focus more on prevention and treating the entire family. And we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. Um, And we also are operating under the stigma of, okay, well, addiction is a choice or it's not a disease. And I feel like so many people believe, specifically, I'll speak to my work, so many people believe that people are choosing drugs over their children. Mm -hmm. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. I don't understand how they could choose that over their child. So let's unpack that because I think that that is the most common told story that I've heard at least mm-hmm. that people who are in their addiction or in their di- in like in active addiction are choosing that world mm-hmm. and choosing that life. So can we talk a little bit about the difference between making that choice and actually what leads them into a full-fledged addiction and then what it looks like? What is that? So the choice to use the first time is there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe that you choose to pick up, right? And that's a choice that, that people make most of the time. It's a choice. But if you struggle, if you have the disease and you pick up, you're not going to put it down until you can figure out or until you can get the help that you need, like until you can get people in your life who care, until you can change the people, places, and things. That's that's not a, that's that phrase is true. Changing people, places, and things is real. Like we're asking people to give up everything they've ever known, which is drugs, when we're asking them to get sober. So- Let's talk about what you said that the the choice to use for the first time is a choice, which of course, I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, there's always an exception, but most of the time that is an active choice. But can we talk about how many people in the population make that choice and can walk away? Then, for example, people who who use drugs. Mm-hmm kind of quote unquote recreationally, but because they don't, they're not hardwired for addiction. That's not in their genetics. That's Mm -hmm. not in their DNA. They can walk away from it and how those same people then can judge those who can't without understanding that it's just because you somehow won the genetic lottery and drugs and alcohol do not switch on that part of your brain Mm -hmm. that it does for people who suffer from this disease. And can we talk a little bit about the way that that hardwiring actually creates this disease? And you don't know. You don't know if you are the one of the ones who carry that hardwiring. You don't. I mean, you can know if you're predisposed, you know, if it's in your family, if it's in, if you feel like, you know, it's in your genes, that sort of thing. I do feel like it's a genetic disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody's walking around choosing to get cancer. Right. You know, we don't, we don't go out here and choose to get diabetes. Mm -hmm. You know, these are things that, you know, we were treating that are diseases, but we don't treat the disease of addiction as a disease oftentimes. Right. And so you don't know. I mean, you can know if you're predisposed. You don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, like some people can walk into a bar and have one beer or two beers and call it a night and not have to continue and continue and continue and wake up the next morning, continue and continue and continue. They can. Mm -hmm. Some can't. So I'm going to just jump in here. I'm curious because 
excuse me, while, while I realized that there are, for me, there's tons of addictions, right? Mm-hmm. And it's neat that you said diabetes, you said cancer, um, because, you know, cigarettes are a drug. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, caffeine is a drug. Mm-hmm. Um, sugar, in many ways, is, can be a drug. Right. Because these are all things we can be addicted to. Right. And then society, you know, our, our food manufacturers, our, our FDAs or whatever have allowed things to be put in things that we consume on a daily basis. Yes, it is our choice to consume them, but it was not our choice to put what addictive manner was in the element. Right. For us as individuals to become addicted to. So I, I'm just curious that we had this conversation. I mean, definitely specifically in, in where if we're talking about Clark County and we're talking about the opioid epidemic, you know, because not everybody ran out and grabbed a needle, right? Some some of these were actually prescriptions mm-hmm. that came from a doctor, right? Our medical providers somewhere were supposed to be safe and then later were penalizing them with jail. So I love that your court specifically is a court of solutions, right? We we, we look at the problem um, and, and we're trying to eradicate or rid of the over-incarceration, right? So because in Clark County, I think it's 700, no, in the state of Indiana, I think it's like 700 people per thousand that actually go to jail. And in Clark County, we have a hundred, like roughly a population of 113 people. That means we've got 76,000 people going in and out of jail. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm wondering like how many of them are going to jail because they have a substance abuse problem. Now, if we relate that to black or white, I mean, this is a long conversation. This is a long question, right? Because, you know, Clark County is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And we know in the 80s, most folks went to jail. If you were in Clark County, most of the black people went to jail for addiction or whatever. And so now we're seeing reverse because now we're saying, well, addiction, is, is a disease, not a choice, but we're still using this word choice as if as if some folks actually had a choice to take that first step. And I agree with that. And I actually was thinking about that as well. There's there's such a huge percentage of folks who I I see who are like, I got in a car accident or I had some dental work or I was injured playing sports and I was prescribed pain meds. And that started my that started my journey, right? Yes. And then I also have folks who are saying, um, you know, my doctor prescribed me hydrocodones or my doctor prescribed me Adderall. Adderall's huge. You know, like that's a, that's been a huge one. And I can't, I don't know what to do. Like without, you know, when, when I don't have any more of it to take, it's just so, that's a huge, I'm glad you made that point because I was actually sitting here thinking about that too. Large percentage of folks who come in and say, I had an injury. And I was prescribed pain meds. So let's let's follow that path down because I'm I'm thinking of a few moms that I worked with that that was their journey as well. So at 13, you got in a car accident, or mm-hmm. you got into an accident in sports, playing a school sport, mm-hmm. and you were given pain meds, not knowing that your brain then switched on. And when it was time to stop taking that taking that pain medication, which you know your your buddy over there stopped taking their pain medication, it was fine. And so you you went in not knowing that this could even be a problem that turned something on in you and it was time to stop taking them, your body reacted and you started going through withdrawals. And you're looking for, at that point, anything to medicate those feelings and those actual real symptoms that you're having. And then at what point, you're right, at what point was that a choice that this person had no idea and they trusted a doctor? Of course they did. And they were in pain. Mm-hmm. You have to do what, you know, so this is not such a cut and dry thing. I do want to go back to something that Miguel said, though, that now we are seeing it as a disease when our, it was our children, it's our neighbors who are starting to suffer from this disease. Before, when we were incarcerating and not treating as a disease when we were criminalizing behavior, that's when we were, it was the other. It was people from that side of the tracks or it was, you know, predominantly black people. So white people could say, oh, look at that. They're terrible. That's so terrible. And um, obviously we can talk about the crack epidemic and the um, introduction of, of drugs by the actual government, but we won't do that in this setting. Why not? Because they did it and I they're mean, still doing it. I, I mean, mean, the biggest the biggest drug dealer in this country is America, mm-hmm. right? I mean, our police, our sheriffs, they benefit from incarcerating people every day. They benefit from the drugs that they take off the street and resell. They benefit from taking guns off the street and reselling them, right? They Let's let's stop. Let's stop here. I'm going to be this one. let's stop the bullshit right well, <laughs> and and let's and let's be bull. honest <laughs> about it right you know you know we we like to identify as those things that or those entities or institutions that we identify as peacekeepers right but the reality of it is they are machines of war um they are tools of war they carry guns just like the rest of the people they take orders just like rest of the people but their job is not to maintain status quo right unless it's their status which is let's be honest right power. it's it's a power control construct and nobody wants to go back but America is built on the sl- on sl- on the trait I'm mean, not even want to say slavery it's built on the trafficking 
of people. That is our economy. Always has been. So I know the court don't want to say that, and you probably can't say that, so I'm not going to ask okay, you to I say want, that. I want to make a I'm note not. that Miguel and I are 100% having this conversation, and Iris is not. And it, But here's the thing. If we're going to talk about truth, this is the conversation. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. can't listen to this and understand that this is the conversation that many people are having, then as as Iris's court is a problem solving, I'm going to say you're, problem, you're part of the problem, and maybe you should go to her court and get some solutions. Because um, they're not locking you up. They're helping you go on a journey. And mm-hmm. I and I love that part. Um, but let's that. let's be honest. You know, so common conversations is about the conversations that we're having at our table. And we're talking about equity, we're talking about social justice, we're talking about, you know, redoing, undoing, rewriting a system that is not flawed but designed the way that it is, then we have to have this conversation. And part of that is our justice system is part of our economic growth. It benefits, Huge. whatever, Huge. you know, maybe the right word. Somebody is economist out there. You guys can toss me the right words. But the fact of the matter is, is that they make money off of this shit. I mean, and I, I do, I think that, that we can't, have this conversation about where we are now and without talking about where we've been, that um, we created a a war and we created um, a war on drugs that was created to remove a large population of people from the voting block. And for more information on this, you should read The, Real, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and she'll enlighten you on this. However, and also that that was very intentional, but the unintentional result has lead, led us to where we were. The the people who were masterminding that move didn't expect it to then come into their own home. They didn't expect to see the, this problem trickle into their neighborhood, into their house. And that's what's happened now. And now we're able to see it for what it is that we've created a huge problem. And the problem being that our children, our neighbors, our friends are, are hardwired for addiction. They are now using these, you know, the, the substances that were criminalized before and still, I mean, to be fair, are criminalized, but we're now looking at it as from a supportive lens rather than just punitive as we used to. And so that that leads us to, again, this amazing idea that maybe always should have been the case, that maybe we shouldn't have been creating criminal classes and criminalizing this behavior, but looking at it as someone who is suffering from a disease, no different than cancer or diabetes, like you mentioned, but... And, and we would never be punitive towards people who have cancer, yet people who suffer from this disease, we still want to look at through that punitive lens, and we want to judge them for their decisions. Um, so those are, that's the stories we, t- we have told. Mm-hmm. What's the truth? And I think we've, we've hinted at the truth already about, about people who suffer from this disease. What other truths can you tell us from your work? People are suffering. I mean, they, they're out here trying to achieve housing. They're out here trying to get jobs. They're out here trying to secure some sort of transportation because our public transportation system is beyond broken here. Can we? And so, can we? Can we? That? Can we? I mean, to be real, again, we are not Louisville. No. Yet, we rely heavily on a public transit system that is based in Louisville, mm-hmm. and we ask them to start out with all of our needs. And our families and our people cannot access these resources without transportation. We don't live in that kind of world. We do not have the transit infrastructure set up. So I do want to talk more about that. So like you said, they're suffering. Mm-hmm. These And these are people who are aware of their addiction, want to get help. But Iris, is it, I mean, and I'm 100% playing devil's advocate here. Well, if someone wants help. They can go get it, right? It's accessible. Mm-hmm. If someone wants a job, they can go get a job, right? Or housing. They can, if they really wanted it, they would get it, right? So I'll start with the treatment question. Yeah, they can. We have some excellent treatment providers in our area. Um, that's why they have a wait list two miles long. And, you know, I'm extremely lucky in what I do that I have partnered with a couple of agencies locally here who do try to prioritize our folks that come through our program. That's the folks that come through my program. A small percentage of the folks in in our county who are suffering are who we get to serve, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, they can. They just have to wait. Or they show up and then they miss, or they show up and then they miss, and they miss because they don't have transportation, or they miss because they are at a job interview, or they miss because their ride didn't show up, or they miss because they live with their mom and she OD'd. You know, like all of these scenarios, this is real life stuff yes. that these people go through every day. You know, you and I, we went out this morning, we got our coffee, we went, we got in our cars that started right up that brought us here today to do this um, podcast and have this interview. And we had no issues. Mm-hmm. We had no issues. We pulled out our wallet. We paid the guy for our coffee, told him to have a great day, have a good weekend. We got in our cars and we came here. And 
two How? days ago. You know what? I went out and started my went to start my car. It didn't start, and um, I was able to pull out my card and buy that two hundred and fifty dollar why batteries why that <laughs> buy the two hundred and fifty dollar battery why cold weather I know <laughs> I hate you um, and then go about my business that disrupted my day for about forty five minutes. Yeah. That is not the case for someone who $250 is going to take them out. You pulled out your card, right? Uh-huh. Think about being able to pull out a, a debit card because a lot of my folks don't even have access to a bank account because they owe banks money or they are in the negative or they don't have an ID to go and get a bank account or they don't have anything that's going to be direct deposited and they don't have anything to put in it. So the simplest act that we take for granted is a privilege. Mm -hmm. So the privilege to be able to open a bank account. And if you are in check systems because you owe a bank money or you have you know, issues in your past, something that you did when you were younger um, and in active addiction, you are going to continue to pay for that. Um, there are banks that will open it mm -hmm. at a hefty fee hefty and fee. you will pay for the right to do what the rest of us do for free. It's also poverty tax. It, it costs a lot, costs a lot to be poor. So you're saying that people want help and it is not as easy as just being able to go out and get a job. Well, everyone's hiring. Mm -hmm. They are. You have um, to be able to get there. Mm -hmm. You have to be mm -hmm. able to get there on the schedule that they want to put you on in order to achieve that job. You mm -hmm. can want a job all, all day. You can be employable. You can be sober. And you can go and you can be hired. You have to be able to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I, and I know we're throwing a lot of things around and, and we're coming up on our half hour. We can stay longer if you want. It's up to you. I, I'm, I'm curious to... I do have a lot more to say. I was All like, right, let's go. More. So then, you know, I'm going to let you share as much as you want. So I, I'm curious to what programs exist to help counter the disparities, right? So we're saying, hey, you know, we if we've got this disease of addiction and we're being affected in, in, a, in a numerous of societal economic ways, housing, job opportunities, transportation, are there things in Clark County that are set up to allow folks to get back on, let's say, the level, right, to get back to zero, right, where they can start building again? That's a good question, right? So Thrive is a program that has been implemented. I know that they will help with rides to treatment, like to and from treatment. I know Medicab is semi-available, but it's not very reliable, but also, again, to treatment and from treatment. As far as to work, or to the grocery store, or to go pick your kid up from after-school programming, or anything like that? No. I don't know of any. I have no knowledge of any. Mm -mm. And even ride-share programming like Lyft and Uber that is very expensive, if you're going to rely on Outrageous. that, um, you have to have a card. And a cell phone that has an app. Yeah, so that's funny you say that, because luckily, we, my program has a grant. It's a federal grant. And so we are able to help people with rides. And so one of my girls had a, um, one of my ladies had a, an appointment for a substance use assessment last week. It was at 1230. I went to send her an Uber to pick her up. She lives in Clarksville. Her appointment was in Jeffersonville. It was $44 because it was lunch time. For an Uber? Uh-huh. For in Southern Indiana. It was $44. And let's talk about that as well. Again, that was for a, a treatment-related thing or a medical thing. So let's just touch on this. If you did not know, so Medicab is a program that if you are able, if you have Medicaid, you can access limited numbers of rides, depending on the type of Medicaid you have. Also, you have to know that you can access limited numbers of rides to and from health appointments. You have to give something like, it used to be 48 hours notice, now it's 72. That type of planning and thinking ahead when you live in chaos, when you live in survival mode, to know where you're supposed to be in 72 hours, to make that phone call. And also, I want those of us listening to think, how much do we hate picking up a phone? No, nobody wants to call anybody. And that's a skill. It's an art that we have lost. And we are asking folks to do that and then possibly have to call back and call back and call back because we're not going to get an answer. It's the same thing with treatment. Picking up that phone the first time, especially not only if you have the disease of addiction, but then you also suffer from depression that is a motivator killer, making that first phone call might be all you have. Mm -hmm. And then when you have to call back and call back because these doors are not easily opened, you lose people. You lose people to hopelessness. I just can't. There's no one there to help me. I can't do this. So I'm hearing you. the truth being people are suffering. They want more. The infrastructures do not exist in our community to get them 
like Miguel said, from a negative 10 to zero, to a zero level. So what what's standing in the way? Why don't we have those systems that are equitable? Can we, can we talk about that also? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of your families, I'm guessing, because they're the families that we work with as well, also deal with everything and all the stressors that come with poverty. And what I do know firsthand, because I've had friends who've done it, who, people who have private insurance, people who have a little bit of money in their accounts, they can get this help Mm -hmm. with very little extra effort. So you may be listening and saying, well, I know my neighbor, she called, you know, the treatment center and she was able to get in that same day and, you know, everything was fine. But did your neighbor have insurance that could pay for it, that could pay for a different facility that didn't have a month-long waiting list. And so there's a there's an equity issue mm-hmm. between those who have insurance and who can pay for this and those who do not. What stands in the way of this being an equitable system? So when you say insurance, people who have private insurance versus people who have Medicaid, I want to touch on that real quick because, of course, our treatment providers are going to accept folks who have private insurance because do you know why? The per diems are much higher for those the folks. reimbursement rates? Yes. Much better. Much better. And so they have to make money, mm-hmm. right? And so um, what's standing in the I'm sorry. So what's standing in the way of making the system more equitable so anyone who needs help and wants help can get it? And maybe they don't have to be involved. They don't have to come to the uh, the attention of the justice system Mm -hmm. to get the amazing support that you're able to offer. We don't have enough in our community. We don't have enough support surrounding that. We don't have the, I don't know the funding. I don't know who's applying. We don't have, we don't have enough beds and bodies, right? And so I feel like even talking about the folks who are doing the work, the the therapists who are over here in Indiana doing the work, they're on the front lines, they're seeing these folks, they're working their their butts off every single day. Um, they could go right across the bridge five miles from here and make a crap ton more money. Oh yeah. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that's a huge thing too, like being able to educate, train your workforce and also pay them Mm -hmm. for the work that they're doing when literally they could see Louisville from their office and go over there and make so much more money. Yes. Um, So that's a huge piece of making the quality of services equitable or the quantity, I'm sorry, of services equitable. We just don't have in our community specifically in Clark County, we have very few agencies who are up in operation and doing and providing the services that our county needs as a whole, that our our folks need. And I know you, Iris, to be someone who is very passionate about this and who will speak to, uh, speak about this. And you've said, we don't talk about this enough. Mm-hmm. Is that a path to bringing equity? When, you know, those of us who kind of sleep comfortably at night lay in bed thinking, my neighbor is suffering. Mm-hmm. My, my friend has an addiction and has a disease and we are treating them like garbage because they've burned bridges with us. But what if that's a disease? So if we helped people to grow empathy in that way, to understand it for what it is, is that another path to making this community more habitable for people who have this disease? Yeah, and that's what I was talking about earlier with educating the whole family, right? Because family is not just blood. Family is family. And so family is could be your close friends. Family could be your neighbor. Family could be, you know, your sister's cousin's boyfriend's family. You know, it doesn't really matter. So like, Treating the entire family is something I feel like we are also lacking in respect to educating the family members, educating those folks who are living with someone who struggles with the disease or who has the disease or who is looking for someone on the streets who has the disease. You know, like trying to educate the entire family as to one, it's not a choice. Two, it's not your fault. Quit taking it upon yourself. And three, this is what we can do for this person at this time. So what I'm hearing is the reduction of <clears throat> stigma. Yeah. So we can have the conversation uh, without shame and without that stigma. I also think, and and we know this, that generations before us, we just didn't talk about this. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about anything. No, we didn't. We didn't tell the truth because you have to make it look good on the outside. And there are a lot of us who grew up in a world where you just have to make it look good on the outside. So what you didn't know was that your uncle was an alcoholic, or what you didn't know was that someone in your family has this disease that then you might be genetically predisposed to. And because of stigma, we didn't talk. Because of shame, we didn't talk. So if we can reduce the stigma, reduce the shame and have this conversation in a real way. So when my child, because I am from family on both sides who have some lost their battle with addiction mm-hmm. and, you know, because they were they were doing it quietly in a, you know, in a mm-hmm. closet where we couldn't tell the truth about what was happening. What I have been able to tell my daughter because I know our lineage, because I know someone finally did tell me the truth. And I'm like, you know what? When you take that first drink, you need to pay attention. You have to pay attention to what turns on in your brain. What are you now like? Oh, that, that felt a little better than it should have. And then we can talk about it. 
But if you're going in blind and all of your friends, you know, you're at a party, all of your friends are drinking, so this, then they're fine. They're able to put it down and you can't. You might know why if someone has had that conversation with you and if we're telling the truth. I think prevention is a huge thing, too. We don't do enough prevention. So let's go in our schools and talk to our kids and let's be truthful with them. I don't think we do enough of that. You don't think just say no or <laughs> you don't think that worked? No. I mean, I think it was a great idea and a great start, of course, because there was education in that, right? But we don't do enough, especially now where literally I'm seeing stories in the news about fentanyl pills looking like Smarties. I, I literally just saw that in the news yesterday evening about how we're passing this stuff off as candy and it's deadly. And our kids are getting a hold of it because their parents are have it or their brothers and their sisters or they're selling it at school or this, that, and the other. And I, I just, I think that we could do more work in our community as a whole on the prevention side of things. You know, I, I love the idea of prevention because just say no doesn't. I mean, in a sense, just say no. Like I've told my kid, like, hey, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, right? But then I had to say, okay, this is why you don't. Right? Mm -hmm. Because these are the things that can happen, right? You don't want to be on a street corner saying, I'll suck a blank, you know, <laughs> to get a fix, right? But there are, I mean, that's a reality. Mm -hmm. I know some people who say, you know, I mean, I'll ask them, like, why do you do new harder drugs? And they were like, because I didn't want to be on the street corner saying, I'll suck it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, but there's there's a lot of other reasons to get out there, right? Because here's the thing, like when we, when we say, you know, you're at a party and everybody's drinking, so why not you? The question is, you know, why not you, right? What, 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 what's happening in your universe that says, I'm going to smoke my first joint. I'm going to take that first cigarette. I'm going to take that first, you know, beverage, right? And, you know, we start smoking cigarettes and then we have a beer because we get a buzz and all of a sudden we, there's a feeling, but what are we, what are we trying to escape? Are we really talking about the lives that we live, right? You know, the idea that are so many people who live in this world who are just surviving, mm -hmm. they want to thrive, right? Whether it's economically, whether it's social, whether it's, you know, we're fighting, you know, who we are internally, you know, what we look like, what we feel like, you know, do I eat too much? Do I not eat enough? You know, we we as people, we're people, we're flawed, right? And then sometimes the abuse of a substance comes along with that journey. I mean, again, going back to your core system and talking about we deal with the problem, and I and I hope that, and and I guess this is more of a question. You know, when we when we when we say we're dealing with the problem, you know, and we're offering solutions to a situation, are we really going back to a transaction that occurred in a person's life that was their first, right? Because that was the start of it, and what 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 help that decision. And, and I'm not a therapist, but I, I do wonder sometimes if we can take it back to there. Does that start to say, you know, now we can now we can move forward because we understand that first transaction. I know why I smoked my first joint, right? Because I wanted to get along. I was hanging out with the buddies. I was young and it was like, yeah, try. And I got tired of finally saying no. And so finally I smoked one and was like, oh, this is cool. But you know, for me, I didn't like it. I didn't really care for it too much. I was like, you know, I'm not really in control of me, right? I don't do this shit. And then, you know, of course, I saw the school teacher on the corner talking about, you know, if you give me a piece of crack, I suck you. And I was like, yo, definitely don't want to do crack, right? Uh, <laughs> crack bad. Uh, but, you know, you know, not to make funny of it, but it's it's my truth, right? And and so I think, you know, I think, again, going back to, you know, Iris's court and, and here in Clark County and saying, hey, you know, we're we're solution driven, right? We want to attack it from the root of the, the root of the issue in that individual within that family. And do y'all really take it? Do you really peel back the layer of the onion? Right. Um, and get to that the, the transaction of it. That's our that's our goal. So everyone who walks through that door has trauma. And um over the last five to seven years, I would say, everything that we've done has been trauma-focused. Everything that we have trained on, everything that we have um, have implemented in our um, treatment systems ha are, are now trauma-focused because literally those people that walk in, they're eight, I don't know if you've heard of ACEs, adverse childhood, okay, adverse childhood experiences, their ACEs scores are through the roof. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know when they started or how they started or if they started on their own volition or if they were prescribed medication. I don't know their story yet, but my goal is to get to know their story. And our goal as a team is to get to know their story. And I'll go back to, I'm so grateful for the therapists that we have. We have a couple, two, uh, actually three that come that sit on our staffing team because they do help us peel back that layer of our onion. Because sometimes I do come at it from a probation officer standpoint. I'm like, well, that's a petition to revoke. You know, like, you can't, you can't why do you keep lying? You know, like, because it's frustrating. It's frustrating but to be lied to constantly. Yeah, you know, like, I go to work to get lied to. Like, I mean, you're not but, wrong. 
But, you know, like at the end of the day, also, we are peeling back the layer of that onion. I'm so grateful for those therapists who sit in the room and say, dude, chill. His basic needs aren't being met right now. He doesn't know where he's going to live tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know where he's going to live after court today or how he's going to get there. Yeah, can you know we what talk I mean? about like Maslow's hierarchy that can like— you just chill for a sec? You yeah. know, like quit, quit dressing him down because like let's—he's literally in survival mode because he doesn't know how he's going to survive. Yes, Yes, and I think that we need to have that discussion that that we're tying people get frustrated and they lose patience with with people who are in active addiction because of all those bridges that get burned. But if we can see it as a symptom of a disease, and again, but I, we're human, so we need someone to remind us like mm-hmm. this is part of the journey. I need that for my when I am you know working with people. I need, and I've been doing this for twenty years. I need mm-hmm. someone to be like Missy. Remember that this person comes from a history of trauma that they started this addiction to escape that trauma. And until that need is met, and like you said, until their basic needs in that Maslow's hierarchy, their foundation is strong, then nothing. We're, you're going to get nowhere, and they're going to lie to you. And that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. And they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm curious of leaders in this community and people, we always talk about the power brokers and the people who can make these decisions. One of the things that I want to hear and what I want to repeat is something that you said about a small percentage of the people who suffer from this disease right now are in your program. Mm-hmm. So a small percentage of the community has access to this amazing wraparound mm-hmm. of love and support and problem solving. What do we need to do as a community? And this might be rhetorical unless you have the answer and then I'm all about it. What do we need to do as a community to make sure that anyone and everyone can have access to that support and wraparound? One, I think that we need to all operate as a team because everybody comes at this with a completely different set of skill, right? Mm -hmm. So a completely different set of circumstances or a completely different background. Everybody comes at this from a completely different area of expertise. And so I think all of the stakeholders coming to the table and putting their, my business is my business and these are my clients aside and putting their own egos aside and and I'm I'm including myself in this. I'm I'm saying everybody who has a stake in this come together and have a conversation about what does our ideal community look like with respect to this disease. How can we collectively as these professionals because to to dress it down a little bit on Wednesdays the multidisciplinary team that I I have the pleasure of working with they come at it from all different areas and it works. Mm-hmm. Do we agree all the time? Heck no. Do we sometimes argue? Yeah. But do we leave knowing that we did the best we could to try to solve whatever problem was in front of us? Yeah. Is it frustrating sometimes? Yes. But am I so proud of the fact that these people are ready, willing, and able to step up to the plate every single Wednesday? Hell yes. So I'm hearing underneath what you're saying, a foundational issue in Southern Indiana that we are siloed. And what that means for those who who don't use that language is that we all live in our worlds. We all live in our bubbles. And I can look at the other silos. So I'm in mine as working, you know, the program manager for Healthy Families and with New Hope Services. So I know the way we do business. And I can look it over at another service provider and be like, ugh. They're, you know, they need to do this better. They can do this better. I can look at them and see their flaws, which I'm sure someone can look it over at us and see ours. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk. We don't come to the playground together and I'll bring our balls to mm-hmm. play. Exactly. We stay and play in our own houses. I mean, God bless. I probably. <laughs> That's not our toys. <laughs> what you said. Let's just keep digging that hole. Right. I'm just going to keep on going. So we, we all keep our own toys in our own houses and we don't come to the playground together. And you know, learn how to play nice because we don't have the foundation for that. We don't have an infrastructure that encourages that. And when do you have time to do it? Do you? I mean, so everybody, not wrong. respectfully, all of these people that I'm like saying, you know, let's come to the table. When are we going to do that? I mean, and also everyone is exhausted. We are. So we I'm, I'm going to jump in here because I'm not part of the system, right? Yeah. Or the service providers. And, I'm not and, part and, of and, your system. No, not at all. And I try my best to stay the hell out of it. Um, <laughs> but, I'm, you know, it's crazy because you're both pro- providers, right? In, in the mm-hmm. community talking about we want to we want to bring equity into the community we want it to be better first of all i'm going to go on a limb and say neither one of your programs can define what equity equity actually looks like and then let me let's be honest we we want to strive for equity Mm -hmm. but we haven't taken the time that's what i'm hearing we haven't taken the time to put an infrastructure in place to build equity Mm -hmm. but we want to do a thing i mean in the business world we would say well that's gonna not gonna work good luck see you in bankruptcy right um because you're working on something without a plan or goal and you won't take time to do the actual work. So that 
goes back to understanding where we are within our organizations. So if we're saying, hey, we've got all these service providers that want to build equity, but we won't take the time to play together. Isn't that a, I mean, isn't that a fail? I hate using the word failure, but that that's definitely a failed uh, culture, right? Um, because what we're talking about, in, in essence, is cultural change. Um, yes, yes. Well, and I think another thing that, that we need to add to the discussion, and something that Iris alluded to, is the reason that we stay so siloed. One of the reasons is I spend 40 hours a week doing what my program needs and those wheels keep spinning and they never stop. So I can, and I and for 20 years, it has been the, the case that we all have just, we're so busy that, but to, to toot our horn a little bit, Miguel, how much time and effort have we put into saying, this needs to happen. We need to tell the truth. We need to bring these agencies together and create this platform. But we had to do so at the expense of our time. And we had to be willing to give that up to, to create a platform to tell these truths and to make sure that we hear this is the road. This is the path to equity. Well, you know, for me, sacrificing my time, there's no sacrifice when I live in a community that is mm-hmm. not a community mm-hmm. of equity, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a community in that sense, right? So when we think about community world, world let, let's just think about social contracts. And I, I, I'm i the business guy over here. I'm not, you know, <laughs> terminology is not my thing when it, when it comes to politics, people, places, things social welfare, et cetera, right? Um, but let's talk about social contracts, yeah, right? So too. social contracts are basically these agreements that we come together to say, hey, this is how we're going to live together. This is how we're going to execute. This is what we're going to build, right? So we have this broken social contract. Yes, we do. Um, because we're screaming, hey, we want to help build equity. We, wa- we want to help those who are, you know, facing substance abuse and, and we don't want to penalize them. We don't want this to be a penal, right? Or, or, or an incarceration situation. We want to make sure that we put them in a thriving relationship within our community. But in our community, if you're saying everybody who's set pushing forward to make this happen is all they're saying is we have to do what's right by our program. But when do you start doing right by the people? Because your pro- if your program serves people and all you focus is on the program, then your program has failed, right? If the community that says we want to better our community is only focused on itself, not the community, then there's no community, right? We have a culture that is broken and it will consistently be separated by those who, you know, are in survival mode, those who get to thrive, and then those who, you know, we're out there in the ether, right? We'll have to figure that part out. So, I mean, and and so I hear this and I'm saying, you're right, Missy, you know, what do we do to bring it to the table? How do we start, you know, we we start by asking the questions, um, you know, and hopefully over 20, 30, 50 years, someone mm-hmm, says, you know, mm-hmm. how about we put an action plan in place? Um, you know, I think sometimes it's stripping out some of the leaders because we they, they just they just can't see through a different lens. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of that, I, I wonder, do we have advocates in our community who are bridging the relationships of service providers? Are and and they're specifically speaking for the people, those who are facing domestic violence, those who are facing substance abuse, those who are facing, you know, being separated from homes, you know, we're calling DCS, you know, and then are we are we having cultural conversations about that as well? Because, you know, where we live in a community that is predominantly white, we still have cultural differences even in the white community. And we definitely have cultural differences in the black community. And when you're in a predominantly white community, you have predominantly white service providers telling black people and Hispanic and Latino people what they should or shouldn't be doing who culturally yes. are, are are ignorant as hell. You know what I mean? So how, yeah, so I, I know that's a, a, a... So how do we do it? Mm, how do we yeah. do it? Is we tell the truth and we do this and we, we call the leaders to the table and create a table okay. that doesn't exist right now. And that's the hope. That's the hope. And also pointing out the places that we know we can do better because we spend a lot of time and I spend a lot of time praising my staff because they kill themselves. But what we know is that we can create a system where we all can work together and we can do better. So it's like, I don't want I don't want service providers to hear this and be discouraged and say, I'm doing everything I know how to do. There is another way and there is a better way that we all can work together. But those of us who are able need to build that table together. And until it's put in front of them, until these conversations, these truths are told, no one's going to do it. I can dig it. I can dig it. You know, I, I, I'm a charge, you know, and I've been charging everybody since COVID or actually right before COVID, but I don't even think I put a definition a definition to it until 2019. You know, I, I, and I charge our service providers in our community. I charge our community at, at a whole who anyone is having this conversation, you know, to define what equity looks like, right? And then come together and, and let's come 
at a common definition and then let's work from there. Because I think that's super important. Definitely, if we're going to say we're a community, right? And we all want to live in a community where we can all thrive. I hope, I can only hope that is everybody's you know, mission, right? Is that we all thrive because there is an opportunity for us all to thrive. Iris, I'm curious, like, because we're about an hour into this and, 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 you know, the journey is real. And what what are takeaways? You know, I love I love your court, right? So tell us who, who your court is, you know, like, what are some takeaways as we are taking people through this journey of recovery mm-hmm. that are great benefits and how we can continue to help? So I love my program too. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do, yeah, before before I answer that, I, I do want to say that whenever we started, whenever I started working for Family Recovery Court, there were five folks in the program, five individuals. It was just myself who judge, my judge told me that I was going to take it over. So I did. And we have since grown into, you know, like I said earlier, we have uh, 42, 43 per- participants right now, two case managers, um, an admin staff, and, and a magistrate judge that that I get the pleasure of working with as well. I am so grateful for the folks that do come to our table. We have a wonderful, wonderful team of people, and they are service providers. Like I said, they're attorneys. They're I'm so grateful for our Department of Child Services being willing to come in and say, yes, we will, we will, we will give you a unit specifically for Family Recovery Court participants because that's what that's what harbors our success is that streamlining that support from the same individuals every single week for our folks. So I know the only thing constant is change, right? However, they are working with the same set of individuals throughout their whole journey through the Department of Child Services case. And that's another one of our goals too, is so that they're not changing service providers, you know, every two seconds. So you're telling me that DCS, I'll touch that, um, created... <laughs> A a unit. Does that mean that those people only have that caseload? So pretty, pretty much, they're they're ninety ninety percent of their caseloads, unless they have some spillover from before, are are just family recovery court cases. So what I'm also hearing, knowing what DCS numbers look like, is that they are able to really devote more time and attention than they would to other families, because we know DCS workers in those caseloads are outrageous. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're talking an amount of people that there is no way you can provide good service to, Mm -hmm. that these staff are able to really focus and provide quality attention and support the way that the system really was meant to. I, I believe so. And I, their caseloads are not lower than other <laughs> than other folks that are at DCS, other family case managers at DCS, but but they they are they do devote much more time, I feel like, because they do come to court every Wednesday. They come to staffing every Wednesday. I mean we are in constant communication with them. Um, so we're an added level of support for each other as well throughout throughout this journey. Which is too, incredible. Which is excellent. It is. We all need that. There is no worker out there who should be doing it on an island, and yet so many do. Yeah, they do. I'm sorry. What was your question, actually? Because I really wanted to talk about my team because I love them so much. Who oh, knows? I'd just be making stuff up. Okay. Well, I he did you. ask, who's your court? Oh, well, yes. Who's your court? Because, you know, I happen to really love your judge. Um, She's super cool. I've gotten the privilege of hanging out with her for a really long time, but I want you to say who she is. Okay. And then on, on the journey to recovery, you mm-hmm. know, how can the community better help you and, and the work that y'all do. Okay. So I work for Judge Vicki Carmichael, um, and she she is Clark County Circuit Court number four judge and also the head judge in Clark County. And then my magistrate is Magistrate Joni Grayson. And she and I have worked together since we took it over six, seven years ago in Clark County here, the Family Recovery Court. So it's a great privilege every day to work with, with those two ladies and work for those two ladies. I make them mad. I <laughs> do things and then ask for forgiveness later. Uh, but we also have a great working relationship. So, and they have sort of let me forge partnerships with the folks that I have forged the partnerships with and build the team that I've built. And they have supported me along the way most of the time. (laughs) So I'm grateful for them. And then, you know, like I said, Department of Child Services, we have five family case managers that sort of come every single week and come to staffing. And then their their staff attorney comes and as well as we partner with uh, Family Arc in, in Jeffersonville and ACP um, in Jeffersonville as well for our treatment agencies. And they're at the table every single week uh, in constant communication with those folks, work very closely with them. And those are the therapists that I was talking about who sort of keep us level-headed in staffing and are able to explain to us 
you know, like we got a long way to go, you know, like let's chill. <laughs> to bring you back. Um, yes. And then, and then several agencies in the area who do, you know, the visitation supervising and do the home-based casework and things like that. We're so lucky to have those guys at the table too and CASA. So I, I guess the final question is what can we do to support not only your work, but people in the community who haven't had the privilege to meet you yet, yet need support? So I think stuff like this is huge. I think things like this and opportunities like this is huge for me to come to be able to come and talk about what we do and what's available and what's out there. And I also think that having conversations in general is important. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't know that anybody at other in other agencies know necessarily what I do. You know, there are people at the courthouse who don't even know what I do. Mm. And so, but I don't, who has time to educate those folks? Who has You know, time? and you probably wouldn't know what I do if I didn't work for you. Right. You know what right. I mean? You may not know that Family Recovery Court exists, but for our relationship previously mm-hmm. working together. Right. And so I think things like this are huge. And being able to have people at the table who you're not like used to sitting on the playground at lunch with, you know, I don't. Yeah, that's totally true. I think it's a huge piece. I just want to come sit at the playground. Where is it? Come on. Where's, where's playground at? 501 East Court Avenue. Oh, I got to come to court. <laughs> I'm not coming. I take that back. I don't, you can come to my playground. <laughs> there we go. Let's go. No worries. Right here. <laughs> well, that's a wrap. We're, are we good? We're good. We're good. It, got it? Got it good. All right. Well, Iris, is there is there anything that you would like to add before we jump off this here podcast? Hi, Mom. Uh, hi, Mom. Let's get it. All right. Uh-huh. Hi. I love I love Iris' mom. Yeah. Missy, anything you want to throw out there in a win? Just, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Let's keep talking. All right, let's go. This is your boy, Gail Gail. This is Common Conversations. And y'all know how we get down. Unscripted, real life. Um, as Missy called it earlier, it's about the truth, your truth. If you want to come sit down with us, you know how to find us, commonconvo.tv. And I'm over here in New Albany. Just come nice or I'm going to smack you. Yo, peace, love, and hair grease. See you in the next episode. Bye, friends. Thank you.